The New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. I've not counted them, but uh, apparently the human brain uh, contains a hundred billion nerve cells uh, and a hundred trillion interconnections between those nerve cells. It's been called the most complicated mechanism in the known universe. Uh, But it won't surprise you to to reflect on the fact that even that degree of neuronal capacity is not capable of comprehending the complexity of God. Now, at one level, of course, that's no surprise, is it? I mean, we were thinking uh, just this morning of the vastness of a God who could bring this universe Uh, the the trillions upon trillions of stars into existence. Uh, The God who is so uh, vast that he could powerfully create the universe like that. The God who knows all things. The God who is eternal. Who exists outside time and yet is present everywhere. And at one level, of course, our finite minds can't encompass uh, a God uh, of such scale. And yet, in a strange way, the passage that we have just had read in Mark chapter 10 reveals to us that our, our struggle to comprehend God is not finally a matter of scale, of capacity. Now, there's a bigger problem. I've got three headings uh, as we look at this little episode in the life of Christ. 
Uh, I want us to notice a word that can't be heard, a desire that can't be silenced, and then a greatness that can't be understood. So first, a word that can't be heard. If you know Mark's account of the life of Jesus, then you will know that in this central section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, three times Jesus explains to them that he is going to the cross, that in Jerusalem he'll be betrayed, arrested, condemned, and given up to death. And on every occasion, you can't help but sense that Jesus has not been heard. Look at the first paragraph of our reading again. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. To some degree, you think, well, maybe the disciples are getting it because they are frightened and they are astonished. They sense that the climax to Jesus' ministry is drawing near. Are they astonished because they see the determination written on his face as he sets his path to Jerusalem? Are they fearful because they have some sense of the danger that Jerusalem will prove for them? But their failure to understand is revealed in the character of their response. See, I suppose someone told you that they were about to die. I guess you'd hope to respond with some degree of compassion, some sort of tenderness towards them at that point. But we get none of that. The first time in chapter 8, Peter actually takes Jesus to one side and begins to rebuke him. Hang on, Jesus, none of this defeatist talk, that won't do. The second time in chapter 9, the prediction of his death by Jesus is immediately followed by an argument. About what? The disciples arguing about which of them is the greatest. And then on this occasion, in chapter 10, the prediction of Jesus' death is followed by the request of James and John. Do you see, it is as if they can't hear it. As if it doesn't compute Not that the complexity of the idea is too great for them. No, but the nature of what it is that Jesus is describing escapes them, eludes them. James and John uh, describe our second heading, a desire that can't be silenced. Pick it up in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. 
I think they've got the idea that the climax to Jesus' life is coming. But as far as they can see, that just means it's time to start jostling for position. And and you don't imagine, do you, that they are asking to sit at Jesus' feet? No, 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 in glory, they have in mind thrones to sit at his right and his left hand. As though if Jesus is moving into number 10 Downing Street, they'd quite like number 11 if that's okay. Make us your number twos, Jesus. Give us a place at the top table. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? Oh yes, we can, they reply. Now what do you think? Do you, do you think that, that this is just pure bravado? or that they misunderstand. It's not clear. You see, Jesus is talking about the cup of God's wrath. He's talking about the deluge of suffering. That's the baptism that he's about to go through. Perhaps they think it's more like a pre-dinner wash and scrub up followed by a goblet of Cabernet Sauvignon. They miss the point. And in fact, as Jesus knows, these disciples of his will suffer. They will be persecuted. They will know death as he has known. Not a sin-bearing death like his, but a path that will mirror his in persecution and death. But they know nothing of that at this point. They have in mind success and glory and power, and greatness. As do the other ten. Did you catch that? Verse 41, When the other ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're not indignant because they're embarrassed by the request that James and John make. No, 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 they're indignant because they didn't think of it first. Which is why, verse 42, Jesus calls them together and sets to teach. Which brings us to our third heading. A greatness that cannot be understood. Let me read again from verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, There's enough in that one paragraph to keep us busy for another couple of hours. Uh, So we must limit ourselves to just one or two ideas. First, recognize that the death of Jesus is both ransom and example. We are used here at Christchurch to emphasizing the death of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin the ransom payment 
that redeems us from slavery to sin. And it is that. But it is also the example that Christian believers must follow. If we are to be disciples of Christ, we must walk in imitation of him. And that means a willingness to follow him down. Jesus has gone down and down and down again. And in that is his greatness. He left the glory of heaven and came down. On earth, he didn't take the place of a ruler, but bowed down to be a servant. The mark of the leadership of Jesus is not a throne of power, but the towel with which he washed the feet of his disciples. He lowers himself to serve. And no one will ever understand the Christian faith until they understand this truth. And it's not, it's not a deficiency in the number of nerve cells in our brains that stop us from getting it. No, it's our own self-seeking nature that makes this so hard to grab hold of. We can't let go of the idea that greatness is about power and status and authority and strength and success. But Jesus has redefined greatness. He shows us that true greatness is found in weakness and humility and sacrificial servant-hearted love. Such is the man or woman that God esteems. Can you imagine what it would be like if we lived that way, really? If every conversation that you and I had today, all the words we spoke, were concerned in serving the person that we spoke to. Third conversations being described as alternating monologues as we take opportunity to say things that are of interest to us instead of really living to serve the other person with the words that we speak. If every day that we lived was dominated by letters written and emails sent and phone calls made out of love for other people, it is beyond us. At least it is beyond us in our sinful nature. But Christ came to redeem us, to ransom us from the love of self. As we see what he did for us, that alone has the power to free us from our self-serving love and begin to live in imitation of him instead. Let me pray for us that it might be so. Father God, we acknowledge that we fall so far short of grasping what it is that you have done. 
that you, the maker of all things, should enter into your own creation and stand uh, on the stage of history, uh, not uh, as one who dominates with power, but one who sacrifices and serves in love. Uh, In Christ, uh, we see the measure of true greatness. Uh, Father God, would uh, his death in our place uh, free us from slavery to sin? Uh, Would it indeed liberate us uh, to live in imitation of him, in imitation of you, out of love for others. Uh, Work that miracle of grace in us, uh, we pray, that we might live to your praise and glory. Amen.